welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Sean McKenna. Earlier this year, we celebrated a kind of milestone. 40 years ago, in a column for the magazine Manga Buriko, writer Akio Nakamori coined the term otaku for a group of young people he saw at a convention. The word itself is derived from a Japanese honorific for the word you. But Nakamori was far from polite in describing what he saw, calling the guys the kind who are inept at sports and stay inside at recess playing chess and describing the girls he saw as overweight and unfashionable. But much like nerd culture in the West, Japanese otaku now command a considerable amount of purchasing power and have sway over everything from entertainment to politics. Today I'm going to be joined by Japan Times staff writers Tu Hongha and Yukana Inoue. They just wrote a story about the creation of an otaku dictionary that had lots of people up in arms on social media. And after we've done that, we'll talk to two more about a long-form piece she just wrote on sitting, which poses the question, are we doing it wrong? Or more precisely, is Japan doing it right? Hello, Tu. Hi, Sean. Hello, Yukana. Hi, Sean. So you both wrote about this otaku dictionary, and I think there's a chance of some generational divides in this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you? Yukana, you're Gen Z. So what would you define as an otaku, and why would they need their own dictionary? I think in simplest terms, otaku can be defined as someone who has something or someone that they're really, really passionate about um, and enjoys spending a lot of money or time investing in whatever this target of their obsession may be, whether it be like idols or games, um, any kind of media content. And I'd say in the past, there was somewhat of a negative connotation against the term otaku, where you'd usually imagine like men in like, you know, greasy hair, don't shower that often, like cooped up in their like homes watching animated girls and such. Uh-huh. But I would say over the past decade or so, um, the definition of otaku has shifted to become a little bit more widely accepted where growing up, a lot of my friends would wear it almost as a badge of honor of being part of this community where they would identify as, oh, I'm a K-pop otaku or I'm a Disneyland otaku or, you know, Johnny's or, you know, Smile Up otaku. As someone who never had that, I was almost jealous because it seemed so fun to be part of this community. Um, And I think this idea of being part of a community is what makes the experience of being an otaku very unique and the reason why they also needed a dictionary because these communities are so niche and specific that they have generated their own terms and you know words culture tradition that they wanted to find a way to catalog them in a way that other people could also get to know So you both went to Nagoya to interview Yoshiko Koide, who kind of led the group that compiled this dictionary. Two, how did Koide come to find herself immersed in the world of otaku? So Koide was teaching a class at Nagoya College about Japanese language, and she didn't find her students very responsive in class. They were very quiet and didn't seem very engaged. But she noticed that outside of class, they were like fonts of information and passion about you know, stuff that they were obsessed about, the things that they were otaku for. So like K-pop and games and boys love and things that she just like didn't really know about. Mm. And she was like, well, there's this kind of baked in enthusiasm that they have and it it does have its own language. So could she combine the two? And she ended up making the focus of their thesis project, this otaku dictionary. Okay. 
it's actually important to clarify that it's not like all the internet's otaku got together and they were like, we need a dictionary. <laughs> and it's not that even the publisher, Sanseido, was like, oh, we need a dictionary. This wasn't originally commissioned as uh, academic reference material. What happened was Koide had this seminar with five originally students. They made the dictionary. They published it. They self-published it for their college fair. And they had uh, such success that she repeated it with her 2023 class, which had seven women in it. And they were approached by Sanseiro to publish it as a dictionary um, and as a published piece of work. Uh, so it was never intended to be an authoritative reference book. And the categories are not supposed to be representative of all otaku stuff. They were chosen by the students from their own genuine passions and their own enthusiasms. So what were some of the terms that were in the dictionary? Do either of you have any favorites? Yeah, some of the ones that really stood out to me, there were some words that were used in English in, you know, regular slang conversation that was otakufied, you okay. could say. Um, one that I thought was interesting is TMI, which, you know, is the abbreviation of too much information. Uh-huh. Um, but in the Japanese otaku um, language, according to the dictionary, is used within K-pop fandoms when idols share about their personal life and their day-to-day and live streams, which I thought was interesting. There was also a ATM, which, as everyone knows, is the um, machine where you draw out money and um, you could call yourself or someone an ATM as the person to um, spend a lot of money towards supporting someone or something. So you could call yourself like, I want to be an ATM for my oshi, which is your bias or the person that you support. So you could be like the ATM for this K-pop idol or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Is that a good thing? I mean, yeah, some people take it as such where you want to <laughs> it's like, like a support. badge of honor. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, the example that's used in the dictionary, mm. the example sentence is, I want to be the ATM for right. my bias. Oh, right. So you <laughs> boast about it kind of. In a kind way. of. Or you, I'm a super fan. Yeah, you like express your desire to want to support your, you know, bias in a way. That's a big part of otaku identity, right? Is like being proud that you're spending money on mm-hmm. X, on your on the thing that you're a fan of. Right, right. Because you want to support them. You want them to right. do good. And you show that through money or time <laughs> or, yeah. I really liked bacon lettuce, which is <laughs> a like great a sandwich. sandwich. Yeah, mm-hmm. Love that sandwich. <laughs> like bacon lettuce. Um, and as far as I know, doesn't have anything to do with like a literal sandwich. But because of the B and the L is used as a euphemism for boys labu, which are gay male stories. Is there a term for bacon lettuce tomato? Sean, don't get us canceled. <laughs> Oh, another term that I was familiar with because I was within this niche community of being or having done dance my entire life. The word shime, which is short for symmetry, is used within dance communities to illustrate the positioning of people on the stage. Um, And I knew this because I did dance my entire life. But the otakufied meaning of it, I was unfamiliar with because it points to certain members of idol groups that take on that kind of role for each other where they either complement each other or they have some rivalry um, relationship to each other within the group. And I thought it was so interesting that it had its own unique otakufied meaning. Huh. Kind of like uh, Jordan and Jonathan Knight from The New Kids. Yeah, that I, yeah sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's my generation. <laughs> yes, yeah, sorry, I'm a <laughs> So the seminar was successful enough to catch the interest of the major publisher, Sanseido. And when it was promoting the release of the dictionary, there was a bit of a backlash among some otaku communities. Yukana, can you tell us what happened? 
Yeah, so basically, when Sanseido released a couple of pages in October in order to promote the release of the book, people on the internet found it and they were not happy about some of the entries. Specifically, one that um, people were not happy about was the definition and example for the term kaokapu. Kaokapu. Kaokapu, yeah. Okay. And so kao stands for face and kapu stands for coupling or shipping, you could say. Um, so the term itself means when fandoms, certain fandoms ship two characters together purely based on how they look, um, regardless of if they have any connection to each other okay. in the actual storyline. Can we give like a Harry Potter or like a Star Wars example here? Is that... Yeah. <laughs> oh, it would be like um, shipping Ron Weasley from Harry Potter with Cedric Diggory. Like, they have no connection in the actual storyline. Just because you want them to be hot just, for each other. Yeah, just because they look good together, I guess. But yeah. Hypothetically. So, hypothetically. Um, so in the dictionary, as an example, they used an existing kaokapu. And I say existing as in there's a fan base that supports or is a fan of this specific coupling on the internet between the protagonist of Jujutsu Kaisen, Yuji Itadori, and another character, Toji Fushiguro. And people were not happy about the usage of this example because they felt as though this specific kaokapu that only existed in the corner of the internet was exposed to the public by publishing it on a published book. So it's like this group of otaku, kind of this small community, had come up with this couple arrangement and then... Uh, all of a sudden they see it published in like an official dictionary and that's kind of like one of their secrets being exposed or something like that. A little bit. Some people weren't happy because of that reasons. Um, other people weren't happy because they felt like the definition of the term kaokapu itself was off from what they thought was the definition of okay. the term. And so they received a lot of backlash and understandably the students were terrified by it because some of the people were saying that they were going to come after them and they were identifying them and stuff. So because of the backlash before the publishing of the book, they ended up taking out the names of the students. And now so only the professor is credited, which I think is a little bit of a bummer because it'll be cool to have as a college student, it's cool to have a book that's published under yeah, your name. Yeah. Well, why is this such a big problem for otaku communities? Well, what Koyade said when we spoke with her is that the thing that seemed to get people most upset is when they saw words being used in ways that they just didn't use them. Mm. So um, I think it gets to this larger thing of otaku being people feeling like they're it's a part of their identity. Um, and language is also a part of yourself and your identity. Um, and I think those two things together made people feel surprisingly emotional, or maybe not that surprising, um, but surprisingly emotional about seeing words just quote, defined in ways that didn't match their understanding of the words. That's interesting because I don't actually think that's, you know, a uniquely Japanese problem either. I think mm. that's something that, you know, people overseas in any kind of subculture would be able to relate to. Yeah, the way I see it is that something happened in between the original intent of the project and uh, the book that we now are seeing on bookshelves across Japan, which is that for the students, this was a student-led project, a kind of ground-up very subjective. It was intended to be a recording of their subjective uses of these words and a commemoration of like their work in the class. And that was that was the intention with the self-published um, version of the dictionary. But with Sanzedo coming in and publishing it as a, you know, 
and a, and a very official looking bound book, as Yukana said, from a publisher known for dictionaries and uh, mass distributing it. I think that it does give it this sheen of authority and it almost could be interpreted as a form of gatekeeping instead of something really organic and really fan led. It looks a lot more top down than it was originally intended. And I think in that shift of platform, it significantly changes the purpose of the of the book. Right. So there are two articles online related to the Otaku Dictionary, and I'll put links to those in the show notes. Two, Yukana, stay seated, because after the break, I want to talk about a piece two wrote recently on sitting. Two, a few weeks ago, we published a story by you titled, Has Japan Mastered Sitting? The story is a truly in-depth look at the history of sitting, primarily in Japan, but with mentions of other countries too. It also dives into the psychology of sitting, its impact on Japanese culture, and even the political aspects of what's really something we do every day and often don't give another thought to. I remember you coming to me and pitching this piece a few months ago. What gave you the idea to write about sitting in the first place? <laughs> um, I mean, you let me do it. <laughs> yeah, I, well, it, it's a weird thing because you pitched sitting. <laughs> I think you just yeah. said sitting. Yeah. And then we were just calling it the sitting story for a while. Right. And you're like, and then two will publish sitting. And I think listeners have to understand that whenever anyone got into a conversation with you about <laughs> sitting, soon they would start talking a lot. They, yeah. they actually wanted to know a lot about sitting. Yes. Working on the story confirmed that it needed to be written, which is not necessarily <laughs> the order you want to go in. <laughs> but um, yeah, I found that the, I would, the more I would talk to people about sitting, the more... I would get more ideas because everyone's had something to say. So I'm curious, what kind of sitting situations do you guys have at home? Um, I've got sofas. I s- I'm such a floor person. Mm. I always sit on the floor. That's my go-to position. Do you have above floor seating at home? I mean, yes, I do. <laughs> I do. We have like dining table chairs and my desk has a chair. But even then, I opt to sit on the floor usually when I'm relaxing. Huh. Yeah. Do you like and does it work for you? Because like I I would say I have a a seating situation that is not ideal, but I just work with what I have. My I have like I have this backless chair. I I, I don't I don't understand this chair. It, It it has a back and then it has a butt. And then in the place where you would expect it to have the support for your back, there is a hole. Right. And it's a very popular nitori chair. But it's giving you back pain. Well, it has no it has literally the opposite of support. It has empty space where you expect something to be supporting you. Okay. Well, during the winter, because it's cold, um, our family has the kotatsu table where there's, you know, a blanket around it where you can, like, sit inside and it warms you up. And that one, like, you have to sit on the floor at a 90-degree angle to use the table. So it can be a little bit uncomfortable, but no back pain so far. But that could also be because... I'm pretty young, so, you know. <laughs> For now. For now. No back pains yet, but we'll see. So you grew up in Japan, and you, but you went to college in the U.S. Yeah, so I think this will become important in my sitting journey. Um, but <laughs> I was born here, and then I briefly lived in the States when I was young, like when I was like five or six. Even younger, yeah. Yeah, and then, and then I grew up most of my life in Japan and then went to college in California. What happened to the story of Yukana sitting? Yeah, well, I think one thing was 
when I went to like kindergarten and first grade in America, they told me to sit, you know, crisscross applesauce, hands in your basket <laughs> or whatever that is. So I was told in school that was the way you were supposed to sit. And then I come back to Japan and go to elementary school here and I sit like that and I'm scolded because, yeah, crisscross applesauce is rude. <laughs> yeah. So that was that was a, a big, I guess, reverse culture shock when I came back. And then I was told to sit in sankakuzuari, which is when you sit with your like needs up. So knees yeah. together. Knees together. Your, like, yeah. your arms could fit yeah, around yeah, yeah, your legs. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, yeah, I guess when I went to college, my most natural sitting position is when my legs are like out sideways, you know, bum on the floor. And I was told by so many people that I sit weird, which I had never noticed that about <laughs> myself. But everyone was like, how do you sit like that? Like, so that you looks- sit on the f- directly on the floor with your butt on the floor, your mm-hmm. knees kind of together ish, and then yeah. you're ankles like outside yeah yeah, yeah, yeah that yeah, sounds yeah. uncomfortable yeah. but it looks comfortable when you do it okay. well, <laughs> but no one in japan told you that was weird well Quote, weird yeah i mean yeah i know i know other people who sit like this mm. maybe not everyone but like i was definitely i was the first time i was explicitly told that i sit weird and i guess it also plays in where like in the states like a lot of people don't take their shoes off when they enter right. dorms and stuff so people would beeline for chairs and i guess this is unhygienic maybe but i would just like sit on the floor because that's what i was most comfortable Mm. with um just naturally so i grew up in the u.s and but i've lived very briefly in turkey and india and vietnam which all have very different sitting cultures from the place i grew up in and now of course i live in japan which has a also very different sitting culture and i think that i mean just in hearing you talk, Yukana, like it's reminding me of the original impetus for this story, which is that in the Japanese language, there's all these words, different words for sitting. I think in English, we have a kind of poverty of sitting words. Um, we have lots of words for different kinds of chairs, which is telling, um, but mm. not actually for different sitting styles. So, Oh, yeah, like um, like seiza or like agura or sankakuzuari or things like that, right? Right, like agura is... Crisscross yeah. yeah, and Seiza, can you explain what Seiza is? Seiza is, I feel like, what you imagine, like the Japanese way of sitting mm. when you sit with your like legs folded over, common in like kendo, like mm. ikebana, things like that, the formal Japanese way of sitting. Right. Like the, uh, the characters for listeners who don't know for Seiza are actually like the character for like correct mm-hmm. um, and sitting. sitting. Yeah. So it has this connotation of being the quote correct way of sitting. And I also, in my work, I really like to look at these different small things that we probably don't think a lot about um, and how they're informed by our upbringing, our education, and our culture. And I thought, yeah, sitting definitely falls under this category. Um, and because Japan has such an interesting relationship with sitting, I thought that it was worth looking into. I mean, this must have been especially like a significant topic during the pandemic, right? Like before the work from home guidelines came around, I went to an Ikea and I bought a standing desk. Mm. Uh, I bought a new stool to go with it as well. But um, I just, I was kind of dreading that idea of having to sit at a low table to do my work for eight hours a day. Yeah, I think this comes up a lot for people who move to Japan from countries where they don't have a strong floor sitting culture. So um, 
like you and I, you're from Canada, I'm from the US. Mm. And like the idea of sitting for a long time without a backrest on the floor gives me a lot of stress. Like it, yeah. it just, it's not what I'm used to. I'm used to these like highly, these kind of almost grotesque, like office, ergonomic office chairs with like all these like wheels and like <laughs> levers and like 12 ways of adjusting it. That's just kind of what I'm used to. And I associate that with comfort in a weird way, um, especially for sitting for a long time and working. But yeah, I think that the pandemic for people who spend long periods of time sitting for their work, the, the pandemic really brought out this stress that people felt about how much time they spend a day sitting. Um, and then we have this kind of added dimension here in Japan, which is that for some people it was like, oh, no, I'm going to have to sit on the floor without a backrest all day. Um, obviously, not the worst problem that the pandemic brought out. Sure. It's interesting you say stress because that's actually one of the reasons why I got the standing desk. Um, and I like I kind of splurged and got a good one because I was really concerned about what sitting for so long would do to my health. Um, there's been a lot of stories about how sitting's not like the best thing for you. I think you even mentioned it in your story, like sitting was the new smoking. Yeah, there's that's like a tagline that's been going around for, I don't know, probably last 10, 15 years. Um, but it's like, it's not actually the act of sitting that's bad for you, right? It's sedentary behavior, which means like sitting for a long time. Right. So it's not like sitting down is automatically a, a bad, is bad for your health. But yeah, so of course, I think most people know that uh, sedentary behavior uh, is associated with, I mean, all kinds of problems like insomnia, depression, obesity, heart problems, and death. And I think because of that, there's been a lot of people trying to find solutions, um, such as standing desks. I've heard of exercise ball desks. I've heard of treadmill desks, uh, biking desks. I, I had a coworker who rigged together his own treadmill desk, um, and he would be it was very distracting um, <laughs> to be in meetings with him. <laughs> um, but uh, actually, yeah, and Japan sits a lot. Um, paper from 2011 of almost 50,000 adults from 20 countries found that it was Japan and Saudi Arabia who spent the most time sitting hmm. with a weighted median of about 420 minutes per weekday. And so I think that all these things led me to a kind of surprising place. I ended up talking to an ergonomics expert, but I found that the most rewarding resources were actually historical resources and things about the relationship between Japan's floor sitting, its architecture, um, its beauty standards, and then a kind of how this was all affected by rapid modernization. And then um, after the war, uh, rapid westernization. Is the West in the minority like when it comes to chair sitting? Yeah, well, I mean, for a long time, a lot of civilizations sat on the floor, even after chairs had been invented. So Islamic cultures in the Middle East and North Africa. Um, like I mentioned, I lived in Turkey and there was a lot of floor sitting in Turkey. Um, obviously, native tribes across the across the Americas, um, people in India, people in Korea sit on the floor. I mean, I, I haven't counted. <laughs> yeah. But I think that um, the default is not necessarily chairs. And actually, chairs were not invented by Europe, even though we have that sort of Image. Association, yeah. yeah. It's actually ancient Egypt, which is credited with the world's first chairs going back to uh, 2600 BCE. Right. Scholars believe that it denoted social status. Um, and so, you know, 
the king sat in a chair and that sort of set him apart from his subjects. Mm. And then by the second century AD, um, China had developed a folding stool. And by the 10th century, it had like the actual chair that we know had had appeared and really quickly spread across like sort of mainstream life. Um, and I think uh, scholars say it was kind of a surprising quick adoption of chairs that was not brought about by colonization, which was kind of rare in the history of chairs. <laughs> and yeah, and I mean, Japan did have chairs as far back as 500 AD, um, but they weren't actually like they were sort of niche, <laughs> sort of a niche piece of furniture. Um, mm. It didn't it was not until the 1960s and 70s, actually, that scholars say that chairs really became a big thing in Japan. Right. Which is pretty shocking if yeah. you think about it. Um, there was a yeah, so there was a moment in which it seemed like Japan might start adopting stools in order to keep their kind of dirty clothes from outside, like off of the ground in the house. But then instead, what happened was they started to build the floor of their homes raised. So as listeners might know, like there's that kind of step um, when you mm. when you enter a home. And along with that, people started just treating like the floor as its own piece of furniture and so the kind of the floor became a chair mm. and then you would just sort of take your shoes off and your dirty stuff off before you even get into the house and then everything could be just sort of sat on and right. you knew right. it would be clean right which makes sense that's why i feel comfortable sitting on the floor which i probably wouldn't do the same in a dirty dorm room in la so <laughs> yeah that makes sense was there any impact by not having a chair culture yeah, in many ways, it came to define Japanese aesthetics, um, mm. particularly in design and architecture. There's this idea that gardens and rooms and spaces are designed to be looked at from eye level um, if you're sitting on the floor or if you're kneeling. Mm. People who are familiar with one of the most kind of famously distinctive Japanese film directors, Yasujiro Ozu, like, he, you know, he's famous for shooting from a super low angle. There mm. are people who say that this mm. creates the kind of intimacy of sitting in a Japanese home because you're it's coming from so close to the ground. Hmm. And uh, for the article, I spoke with a chair designer and a body technique researcher, Hiremasa Yatabe. He's actually written several books about sitting mm. um, as, mm. and how the Japanese in particular sit. He has a book, A Civilizational Theory of Sitting, which I love. Right. Um, wow. But he, um, he actually argues that like body postures and fashion and beauty standards and our aesthetic values um, mm. like are all related. And so he talks about how people would convey, like people in power, especially men in power, would sit a certain way to convey that power. He contrasts this with like paintings of, you know, Western European kings who would be standing straight up with one straight leg out as a show of, as like that was their beauty standard of like, this is how right. I'm looking regal and royal. Mm -hmm. But that... Um, emperors samurai like the way that they're depicted in in japan is sitting right you all they're always in that big wide-legged stance um you might uh i think we might call it like butterfly mm -hmm. stance today like where you're actually putting your feet together um i think that some people might find this hard to do today but like um and then they always have like a really tall or really wide hat because this kind of stockiness was like a was a way of like the sturdy stockiness was a way of showing power and kind of like coolness so when i was on the jet program i taught at skuihama high school in yokosuka 
And the Tea Ceremony Club wanted to conduct their club in English. So I was recruited to join that one. And I learned everything to do with uh, tea ceremony or sado, as they call it in Japan. One of those things was sitting in seiza. How'd that go for you? <laughs> I, I was okay with it, actually.、Mm. Yeah. I, I think growing up, I often would sit on my knees. I was corrected not to. When I was at school,、um, mm. you know, they kind of told us we should be sitting cross legged. It was bad for your knees to sit in、mm. Seiza.、Um, and more recently, I've been noticing、um, a friend of mine is a health instructor, kind of like a health expert back home in Canada. And he's been recommending that older people sit Seiza for a little bit at a time to try to like kind of fix their joints or to keep their、mm. joints moving or something. Right. So, yeah, we, we talked a little bit about Seiza before, but it is obviously like very important in these different kind of traditional arts. As you kind of said, kendo, sado, ikebana. We very much have this kind of stereotypical image of like a Japanese tatami room with people sitting in Seiza kind of neatly inside of it. There is a study in 2022 of 132 Japanese university students who looked at pictures of people sitting in different sitting positions. And they were asked questions about how they perceive those people. And they actually perceive people to be more moral、uh, and, and clean、hmm. if they were sitting upright or if they were in their chair or if they were sitting in seiza, as compared to if they were slouching. In their chair, or if they were slumped over, those people were rated less moral than people sitting in Seiza and sitting up. That's interesting because I think of Seiza as punishment. My, <laughs> yeah, my parents were pretty old school. So whenever I would get in trouble, they would tell me to go to the other room and sit in Seiza and think about what I did. <laughs> and also, yeah, there was a, I don't know if it's true, but when I was a kid, everyone would say we would. Get short legs if we did too much Seiza.、Mm. And so I blamed my parents for making me do that for the <laughs> fact that I was short and had short legs. So, you know. Yeah, I haven't read anything about the height thing, but I do know that Seiza has been linked to bow leggedness. I've heard people speculate that that's why bow leggedness is a thing in Japan, but I actually have heard from a doctor that like it is associated with if, if you sit in Seiza for too long.、Um, so, it, yeah, I mean, I think Seiza brings up like a lot for people. I mean, it. There are kind of fierce defendants of it, and it's very linked to these traditional arts. But there's also, you know, people have strong reactions to it as well, like in the opposite way. I think people are surprised actually, but Seiza as like the correct way of sitting is relatively new.、Um, it's not actually a very, very old tradition in the, in the sort of scheme of Japanese history. Yukana, did you know that? I had no idea. No. <laughs> If you had to guess when it became like a codified thing, you have any, any ideas? I don't know. Maybe like,、um, you said new, so like Meiji era? <laughs> Bing bong. Really? <laughs> so, yeah, it was Meiji.、Um, during this time, there was like a lot of government mandated、uh, like modernization strategies, laws, tactics, and part of that was education. and Part of education was how to be polite in society, how to、mm-hmm. eat your bento neatly, how to greet other people, how to bow, and how to sit.、Um, and so at that time, in, it started to kind of crop up in like etiquette textbooks, was this way of sitting, which we now call Seiza. So it was during this time that it became institutionalized as this kind of enforced way of sitting. But before that, there were all these other kinds of sitting styles that were. 
common and popular and even cool looking. And as many of the kind of Seiza opponents will point out, uh, Sen no Rikyu, who's seen as the, the father of modern Japanese tea, himself sat in Aguda. Really? He sat cross-legged? Yeah, he didn't sit in Seiza in the depictions of him. And this is like a major part of the story of sitting is that during this era, people underwent all this like body training um, in schools and their bodies got really used to it as I mean, I think you kind of your experiences of having to go like to certain body training, then undo that body training, go to new new body Mm. training, come back from that body training. You know, I think that all sort of stays in the body. And so that was that was one kind of major event in the story of sitting in Japan. And then the other big one was that after World War II, there was a big push for chairs. Hmm. At that time, there was this demand for Scandinavian chairs and modern chair design. Um, tatami started to fade from people's, especially in their city apartments, and this kind of long-established way of living directly on the floor, you know, including sleeping on the floor, started to be replaced by chairs and by uh, beds and things, you know, off the floor. Yeah, no, that's interesting because at my grandparents' house, you know, it's most a lot of it is tatami and we always sit on the floor and sit on the floor at low rise tables to like watch TV and stuff. Um, But I feel like comparatively to that, my like family house where I live with my parents, it's more hardwood floor. There's no tatami. My parents actually used to sleep on like futons, but I was the one who asked to get a bed because I was like, I don't know. I see all these people sleeping on beds and it looks really comfortable. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I definitely I feel like I've seen the progression of um, that floor living all the way to the current more, you know, Ikea inspired rooms to sleep and sit in. Yeah. And I think that what you're saying, like, illustrates kind of. One of the problems in the story of sitting in Japan, which is that it it happened so quickly. It's not like this happened over like hundreds of years. We're talking about like 50 years, right? 60 years. And so like in, in the span of like one generation, people are going from a long tradition of floor life to like chair and bed life. And that is causing actual pains in people's bodies because they're used to one way and they're quickly having to adapt to another way. I think that Yatabe, the researcher that I spoke with, he likened this to trying to get used to high heels overnight. It's like mm. you are you have this long history of no high heels. You know, you have Geta, you have Zori, and um, there's not this like really strong arch, which in Europe has been going on for centuries. So it's not to say that one is better than the other, but it just the body doesn't really necessarily get used to it just in one generation. So are we going to be uncomfortable for like 100 (laughs) more years? (laughs) Um, So I think, you know, he also argues that it's possible to kind of like practice. It doesn't mean like that everything will just overhaul overnight, but you the body is kind of is pliable Hmm. and flexible. And so he talks about being body bilingual. He's referring specifically to being able to sit in the Japanese way and to sit in the chair way. And so if you're used to growing up in a floor sitting culture, you can find ways for your body to adjust to chairs. Primarily, you do that by looking for better chairs. Um, And then uh, if you're used to chairs, you can get used to floor sitting by... um, by stretching, basically. Stretching. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I want an immediate stretch. answer to immediate I just results. want the perfect chair now. Um, no, Sean, you have to stretch. <laughs> you, can, you can work on your flexibility. I think that, I mean, I, I do think that, like, it can be, I'm I'm not a, a, a tall 
foreign man, but I see lots of tall foreign men who tried to adjust to life in Japan and they look very uncomfortable and mm. I feel kind of bad for them. There, I've seen, I once watched a very, very tall foreign man like try to sit through a very long musical performance in Kyoto and he was sitting on the floor. He looked so uncomfortable. He was just like switching his legs. I, I assume they were like asleep. I felt very sad for him. <laughs> um, but I think that, yeah, Tabe would say that it's possible through just like kind of like a positive attitude and <laughs> some stretching, basically. Yeah. Positive mm. attitude and some stretching. <laughs> Optimism and stretching. <laughs> well, the piece on sitting is very in-depth. And while it doesn't give us the perfect chair, I think it can lead you to think more about an act that we're all doing for long periods of time every day. Thanks very much, too. Thanks, Yukana. Thanks, John. Thank you. My thanks again to Tu and Yukana for joining me on this week's show. Check out more of their work at japantimes.co.jp. Elsewhere in the news, the controversial American diplomat Henry Kissinger died on Wednesday at his home in Connecticut. He was 100 years old. Kissinger served under two U.S. presidents and left an indelible mark on U.S. foreign policy. His legacy will no doubt be examined over the next few days in the press. Closer to home, Japan began a trial of sales for emergency contraceptive, or morning-after pills, with the health ministry allowing 145 stores nationwide to sell them. This brings Japan closer in line with the more than 90 countries that already allow sales of such drugs at pharmacies. Only individuals aged 16 or older can purchase the pills, with those who are 16 or 17 years old required to have their guardian accompany them. Women must present identification and take the contraceptive in the presence of the pharmacist. Based on the outcome of the trial, the health ministry may approve a full-scale rollout of over-the-counter sales in the future. Some doctors in Japan interviewed on the subject have said they would like to see this go ahead along with improved sex education that promotes condom use for the prevention of any unwanted pregnancies. Sticking with health news, my colleague Karin Kaneko reports that there have been no known cases of bedbugs in Japan, but with reports of the little bloodsuckers popping up in China and South Korea, Japanese experts think it's only a matter of time before we see them here. So check the mattresses and pillows for bloodstains, shed skin, or droppings. Make sure to hang up your clothes, and when traveling, keep your things in your suitcase to be extra careful. If you're returning from any travels, wash your clothes and make sure to put them in a hot dryer. Deep Dive is produced by Dave Cortez. Our outgoing music is by Oscar Boyd. And our theme song is by the Japanese artist 4L. I'm Sean McKenna. Botsukare-sama. 